Well, good morning again. This Sunday concludes our Exodus journey that we've been on going through this series through Exodus. And if you've joined us through the series, through the weeks, or if you've listened online, then my prayer has been that this has helped you as we've looked at God's journey with his people through Exodus, that this has helped you process your losses, your setbacks, uh, even, even some surprises or things that might be called exiles. Sometimes it's even uh, bad decisions or willful rebellion that brings us to a place of setback. But not only that, that this has shown you a road to come back of how God, what God wants to do and how God wants us to come through these things to be in an even better place than we had us before. And that part, as, as we've gone through this, I'm just so unbelievably confident that God brings us through setbacks and he brings us and he shows us a way out of setbacks so that he can bless us, bless us beyond our imagination and restore us to places that we've actually probably can't even figure out. Sometimes, though, that is hard for us to imagine. You know, King David, who wrote Psalm 23, which is a psalm of comfort in so many times of, of hardship, he writes, Surely God's goodness and his unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life. Can you say that? It might be hard for you to say that. As, as we've gone through this series, I've heard an awful lot of times statements like this. I don't know if I'm ever going to come back. Or I don't know how God is going to get me through this. Or, you know, it's fine that he loves me, but he hasn't fixed this. Or he can't fix this. Or he's not fixing this. And maybe you're just not at a place where you can say, I don't, I don't, I, I, I don't see God's goodness pursuing me right now. And if that's you, it, it's okay. God is with you even when it doesn't feel like he's with you. I know because I've been there. Seven years ago, God said go, and I said no. And I was brought to a, an utter place of setback. I was telling a counselor a long time ago, but maybe not so long ago, that it felt like I was in a prison cell, and the warden would come by, and I knew where the key was. And he would stop at the door, and I would tell him, and I would plead with him. And he would look at me either as disinterested, or as clueless, or as, um, or as caring and compassionate. And I would engage, and I'd be like, it's right over there, I just know it is. And then he'd be like, okay, I gotta go. And I was just stuck. And if that's not a mental enough picture of a prison, it literally felt like there were places of death all around me. I mean, there were, yes, there were some good things happening, but it seemed like all I would see was an end of a relationship dying or an end of a relationship moving on or someone that I cared about just kind of dying all around. And if you're in a church, like, death isn't supposed to be what you're supposed to see. You're supposed to see life. Maybe you work in a hospital. If you do, then, then you know the more time you spend there that, yes, there are moments of life all around the hospital, new births all the time, but... There are moments of death all around a hospital. Maybe you grew up on a farm. I was at a wedding uh, yesterday, and the personal attendant grew up on a, on a big farm, and she's like, oh, yeah, there was death all around. There's always things dying. There's things being born, but there's always things dying. Even the zoo talks about how there's, yes, there's, there's new animals that are being born, but there's, 
others that are dying. It's like this cycle is built into creation of life and of death. And I think we forget that. There's been all these stories on the news of of World War II veterans that are passing away. And with it, I think, a whole generation of people that really knew what it meant to suffer. We, We don't. Most of us, most of us, I know it, I know maybe your story's different, but most of us, most of us don't know how to suffer. We like to clean up our world. One of my friends says it this way, we live in a sanitized world where we want to quickly remove pain and death and suffering and anything that makes us feel uncomfortable, so much so that we've lost our ability to suffer, learn patience, grieve, and then recover well. And so we've become shallow, self-absorbed people who get stuck in our setbacks and our losses, and we have no idea how to return. I'm glad my friend said that, because I'm not strong enough to say that. I would think that's too harsh. And I don't want to minimize your situation, but I'm confident, wherever you are in your, in your Exodus journey, that God will call you out of your setback and bring you to a place of comfort. But the final step, the final stage in the journey is facing God. Who is he to you? How do you imagine him? Is he good? Is he really good? What can he do? Does he withhold or skimp? Is he generous? Maybe we need to reimagine God. See, I think we need to talk about this because too many people never make it out of comeback because they see God as too small or too scary. And I get this from from our story. If you have been following along or if you want to turn with me, we're going to jump over to Numbers. Numbers doesn't sound like a very cool title, but actually God has met the people at Mount Sinai. He's brought them out of Egypt, if you're not familiar with the story. God's glory settles on top of this mountain in a cloud, and he gives the people the Ten Commandments. The people get scared because God is speaking directly to them, because God's desire is actually to reveal himself to them. And they're like, no, no, just Moses, you speak to us. And so Moses goes up in this mountain. He gets more law. And he's up there for 40 days and 40 nights. The people get into a little bit of trouble, okay? And so they stay at the mountain for a whole year. Numbers 10 says that in the second year after Israel's departure from Egypt, on the 20th day of the second month, the cloud lifted from the tabernacle and it moved on. It says a little bit earlier, Numbers, that that the people had learned that wherever the cloud was, that's where they were supposed to go. And it says this cool line, whether it was a day or a week or a month or a year, the people would move when the cloud said move and they would stay when the cloud said stay. If you're in a place of setback and you don't feel like you're moving, but you feel like God is there, it's okay. Because God is going to take you through and he might keep you there longer than you want. But if you're faithful, if you're with him, It'll be okay. But God finally says move. 
And so they go. They set out from the wilderness or the desert of Sinai. They travel from place to place, and they end up in the desert of Paran. Now, Paran is on the edge. It's just on the precipice of the Promised Land, so it's over by the Mediterranean Sea and right at the northeast corner of the Sinai Peninsula. And so God is going to have them go in, but as they go on this little journey, after a year of being provided for, Numbers 11 tells us that the foreign rabble, the people who still thought about Egypt, Remember how we said it just, it just took 40 days for the people to get out of Egypt, but it took 40 years to get Egypt out of the people? These are the people why. The foreign rabble were traveling along with the Israelites, and they began to crave the good things of Egypt. And the people of Israel also began to com- complain. Did you catch that? The foreign rabble, the people that were stuck in their Egyptian mindset, they started thinking about the good things of Egypt and they started craving them, they complained, and then God's people also started to complain. And then all the people began to say, oh, I wish I had meat and, and the fish that we used to eat free in Egypt. Right? Free? Mm-mm. And they exclaimed, we remember the melons and leeks, whatever those are, and onions and garlic. We had everything we wanted. But now our appetites are gone. All we ever see is this manna. Oh yeah, right, the heavenly daily bread that God has been giving to them in the desert got a little boring, got a little stale. Every day for a year, God was providing for them. Every day, every morning, there would be dew that would start to look like white flakes. They would go and gather it. It was this thing called manna because they didn't know what it was. But as soon as they looked at the things they were lacking, the fish, the garlic, the melons, the leeks, the onions. Every day they started looking at what they were lacking. If you like the little rhyme, they believed that God was slacking. God isn't good. Because I'm not getting what I want. See, I think that God wanted the people to reimagine who he was. Not scary, but to see he was surely good. Full of goodness. A God who would not only provide for them fully, but wholly restore them. To be the people that had this deep, abiding, totally connected relationship with God. That's what he wanted. But the people just started to complain about it. Because they saw what they were missing. Now in contrast, let's go back to Psalm 23. Look at this king, this David guy who says, the Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. I, I really, I think a lot of us have all we need. I don't remember the last time I said it. God, thank you for being my Lord and my guide. I have everything I need. But David is able to say that. He lets me rest in green meadows like abundance. He leads me beside peaceful streams. He restores my soul, my being. Guides me on right paths, bringing honor to his name. This is someone who sees a God who's good. Who sees a God who restores fully. I think that's what God calls us to when we face him. Is simply the question, do we see that he's good? Do we believe him? 
David believed. He just believed that this was the God who he said he was. And he was satisfied in that. Utterly satisfied. See, the people couldn't see the God who was full of goodness. They were dreaming about the things of Egypt instead of seeing what he'd already provided in the midst of their setback. As we face God, we've got to look at all the things he has provided. Yes, they're different, but it doesn't mean he's not good. He still wants good for them. Maybe you've dreamt about a place that really, if you were honest, it would be closer to death than life. Can you see God's goodness in the midst of it? The way he has provided. That he's surely good. And that if he hasn't restored you fully, he wants to and he will. See, God, God really wants to be the king of our comeback. He wants to be the one who brings us back and the one who blesses us beyond our imagination. And the people who never make this comeback, they not only see a God who's scary, but they see God's size as a problem meaning they see him too small. They don't, basically, they don't believe that God will do what he says he'll do. See, after God led the people from the Sinai wilderness, and they go to this edge of the land, he says, I want you to send scouts, people to go investigate the land. Send 12, one from each tribe, They're going to go do a whole report of the land. He gives specific instructions on how to do it, and they go and they explore the land. They go all around. It takes 40 days and 40 nights. Remember the 40 thing? Complete. Something is changing in the midst of them. Something is being born in the midst of them. So they come back, and they give the report. It says in Numbers 13, if you want to turn over to Numbers 13. And they talk about the goodness. We've entered the land that you called us to explore, and it's indeed a bountiful country. Again, here's this idea of abundance. A land flowing with milk and honey, and here's the kind of fruit it produces. But the people there are powerful. They are large, or their cities are large and strong and fortified, and we even saw giants in the land, the descendants of Anak. Now, these would be the people that are related to the the giants that are hinted at right before the flood. So these are kind of almost mythical people, the the kind that we make legends up about, the kinds of sports heroes that just, as they get older and farther in our memory, they get better, kind of like the fish that we catch. You know, like, I caught a fish, it was this big, and then, you know, a year later, it was this big. I mean, there, there is some truth to this idea of giants, but... We're not sure if it's this projecting of how big it is, too. But we even saw giants in the land. So two of the guys, Caleb and Joshua, they said, hey, let's go at once. If God says we're supposed to do it, then certainly let's conquer. Kind of simple faith. Hey, God says that he's going to do this, then we should just go do it. And the people say, no, no, we can't. They're stronger than we are. Numbers 14, verse 1 says, The whole community began to weep aloud, and they cried all night. Their voices rose in this chorus of protest, and they say, If only we had died in Egypt, 
Think about that. When you've been in a place of setback, when I was picturing a jail cell, and I'm like, oh, if only I would have died in the jail cell. Really? That's someone who's lost perspective. So I can say that to myself. I don't know if I'd hear it from you. I don't know if you want to hear it from me. But if only we had died in Egypt. Now, why would God take us from this country and bring us there only to have us die in battle? Here's the funny part about that question. He probably wouldn't. Right? If God was good, if this was part of his future, then he wouldn't bring us from this place and take us to that place only to have us die. His goal was that they would spend that time at the mountain to depend on him, to see him as good, to see him as this God who provides, to see him as this God who's strong, and, and then to go into the land with this renewed faith, better than they were before, with a bigger picture of who God was before. But they can't. In fact, they plot to say, let's choose a new leader and go back. And so Joshua and Caleb are these two of the 12 scouts who explore the land. They tore their clothing, which is the symbol of grief. They tore their clothing and said, No, if the Lord is pleased with us, he will bring us safely to this land and give it to us. It's a rich land. Again, here's this abundance flowing in milk and honey. Do not rebel against the Lord and don't be afraid of the people in the land. They are only helpless prey to us. They have no protection, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. At some point, we have to say to ourselves, who or what are we afraid of? Who or what are we afraid of that's so big that it's bigger than God? And the whole community rebelled. And the glorious presence of the Lord appears at this tent that they had made. And says this, Numbers 14, 11. How long will these people treat me with contempt? Will they never believe in me after all the miraculous signs that I've done among them? If you were here a few weeks ago, you saw that as God provided for manna, this daily bread for people, as he guided them to the mountain, as he took them out of Egypt, he was very kind, very gracious, very forgiving, very understanding that these people hadn't learned to depend on him. But after a year of depending on him, he wanted it to be a reflex that people would trust him. See, when we look at the obstacles or the size of our enemies, whatever they are, and we believe that they're too big, what we're saying is God is too small. Like, God must be this God of scarcity. And the people, God wanted the people to reimagine who God was and what God could do. Not only to see that he was good, but to see he was surely committed to them, totally committed to them, because he had this unfailing love, this love that would never give up, this love that would be loyal, that would protect them fully. Not just to do that, but to bless them beyond what they could imagine. When we come to the final stage, when we face God, we have to ask ourselves, do we believe that God wants to bless us 
beyond our imagination. Again, not for ourself, not for our self-glory, but for his good and his glory. It's a hard one for me. That God would just give and give and give some more. But that's who God is. He's this gracious giver. Like parents who watch their child open a gift with the innocence that they have and see the joy in it. That's who God is. Not a God of scarcity. But these people, they quit when they saw the obstacles. And God says, how long will these people scorn me? Like, we hold God in contempt when we look through lenses of scarcity. Lenses of scarcity are all about fear. We are afraid because there's not going to be enough. There's not going to be enough time. There's not going to be enough love. There's not going to be enough money. There's not going to be enough forgiveness. Whatever you feel like you need in life and it's not there, it's a scarcity lens that you're looking through. Because scarcity has to keep things locked up. It's got to put walls around it. It's got to hide it. It's got to keep it secret because it can never, like we can never be too careful. Someone might come and take it away. We hold it. We're afraid we're going to lose it. It's just focused on that little bit we have. That's why Egypt was such a bad place. It was because it was narrow. The only good part was along the Nile. And everything else was desert, so people just focused on this little tiny piece. And when we look through life with the lens of scarcity, we tell God, he's not enough. That's the hard one for me. We tell God he's too small. And God is huge. We tell him he's not sufficient. And we tell him that he can't do it. And you know what? Sometimes God respects us enough to answer that prayer. When God said go and I said no, he said, okay. You can wait. And he's gracious. We learn things in it. And that's what happened to the people. Basically, I'm paraphrased. He says, fine. You want it that way? You can walk around in the wilderness for another 40 or so years. Learn what it really means to trust me. And we'll try it again when this group of people that can't stop thinking about Egypt dies so that we can go into the land. But it didn't have to be that way. They really had a choice. I know it doesn't always work this way. I know there are stories of setback that don't see this abundant restoration but that's who God is. And it's possible. And that's where he wants us to, to choose when we have the choice. Abundance sees opportunity when others are going to quit. God wants to, to see that he's a God of abundance. I mean, spring is upon us, right? Well, there's, if you have a home with a lawn, there are these things called dandelions. Okay, this stupid yellow weed that has this one little flower with, I don't know, 35 petals on it. Not that I counted. But then it like b- grows into this white ball of 
pixie dust that children like to blow. And I remember, because I tried it once, and my dad just about took my hand off in a, in a bad moment of retribution because like all of these seeds scatter in a million places and the 35 become like 3 million. And all of a sudden, at the end of the summer, the lawn is covered in these dandelions. It's abundance. It's just evil abundance. Maybe trees are better. We had this giant maple tree at our house. And with hundreds of seeds and the little helicopter things that, again, kids think are cool, but like thousands of seeds. You could ha- make a whole forest out of one tree. That's how God's wired abundance into his creation. I think he's done that in us. And isn't it interesting that seeds go in the ground, which is dark. Even the seeds of life that are in us, not to get too biological, they're in the dark. If you're in a place and you feel like it's dark, maybe it's just a time of waiting. Maybe there's a ton of abundance that is right under the ground that's just going to burst forth when God says yes, when God says it's time to go. But we've got to see through this lens of abundance. David was able to see through this lens of abundance. In Psalm 23, 4 and 5, he says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, or the darkest valley, I will not be afraid because you, God, are with me. My rod, or your rod, and your staff protect and comfort me. You prepare food, a feast before my enemies. And you honor me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessing. These are signs of trust and abundance in the midst of obstacles. David was actually energized because he caught a glimpse of who God was and what God could do. So he believed in spite of the obstacles that he was, that God was completely committed to him. Do you need to reimagine your God? Can you see God as completely committed to you, no matter what you've done, no matter how you've thought, no matter where you've been? Completely committed to you. And a God who wants to bless you beyond your imagination. Can you see God's commitment level in such a way that energizes you to take the step? When God says go, you say yes, not no. And if you've said no, like I've said no, God continues to reveal himself. When these people said no, he continued to show himself over and over and over I mean, think about it. All these desert wanderings, they had plenty of opportunity to see God's glimpses of who he was, these glimpses of who God was. Like, God rescues them from Egypt with signs and wonders, and also known as the ten plagues. And every one of them, God's presence shows up. They saw God's glory in this cloud and in the fire. They saw God drown Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. They saw God abundantly provide for this this bread and, and water in the wilderness. Then God settles over this mountain and speaks directly to the people. And he gets, they get scared. So, so they say, speak through Moses, our, our leader. But he continues to do that. Not only that, he continues to show who he was through his commandments and through this covenant that he makes with his leaders. 
and through these plans for this portable tent so that God's presence would go with them and they would, they would sense that and understand that. And then later that tent of meeting became a temple. And again, God dwelt in that place. But, but God can't be contained in these little boxes that we put him in. And if we're honest, we have to reimagine who God was because we probably made God too small. And now all of a sudden, the little box that we put him in, whether it's a tent or a, a temple or a necklace or a bracelet, God is saying, no, I'm, I'm abundant. I'm unlimited. I want to bless you. I want to walk with you. So he sends himself in a man, in a man who's ordinary, the scripture says, in a man who's so ordinary that people really couldn't tell him in any unique way. A man who reveals to us who God is, how he loves, how amazingly strong he is. Do you know that people who came as Jesus, and when people saw Jesus for who he was, not only did they worship him, they begged him to change things. Over and over in scripture, they asked him to bring dead people back to life. Not just the little boy whose widow was walking in a, in a funeral possession. Not just the little girl who was sick. Not just the, the best friend, Lazarus, when the sisters were mourning. All of these people were brought back to life. And then God brings himself back to life in Christ. On the third day he died, he rose again. He changes everything. When did the resurrection stop mattering to you and I? Can we reimagine who God is? Can we reimagine what God has done? This is the final step. As I think, if we caught a glimpse of who God was, I mean, just a glimpse, I think we wouldn't know what to do. Moses catches a glimpse in Exodus 34. He asks God humbly, doesn't come up very well in the text, will you please show me your presence, God? This is so hard. Will you please show me your glory? And God says, I'm going to make all my goodness pass before you, and I will call out my name before you. But do not look directly at my face, because if you look directly at my face, you will die. No one can see me and live, Exodus 33 says. But I will pass over you. And so God comes down in a cloud and stands there with Moses. So cool. Puts him in a little cleft between two, two cliffs in this rock in Sinai. It says that the Lord puts his hand over where Moses was and then passes over him. And he passed in front of Moses, and he calls Yahweh, or the Lord, the Lord, the God who is compassionate and merciful, the God who is slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. God himself says, I lavish my unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive wickedness and rebellion and sin. I don't excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and their grandchildren, even the entire family, to the third and fourth generations. And when Moses catches a glimpse of God's 
where God's been, he immediately falls down in worship. I think we're too busy being afraid of God to actually be in awe of God. And if we caught a glimpse of who God was, we'd either be flat on our faces in worship or we'd be flat on our backs, overwhelmed. This is the God of the universe who can be our friend in Jesus but is not our homeboy. He's the God of the universe who brings people back from the dead, who can do amazing things in your life, who can restore you beyond what you can imagine. I know because he did it for me, and I'm sure it'll happen again, and I know it can happen in every one of our lives. God took me through places that had I not been there, I wouldn't be able to stand before you today. There are setbacks that you will face that will prepare you to be in a place and to bring you to somewhere where you could not have been before that. And when you think that God is holding back his goodness, be like David. Surely, surely God's goodness and his unfailing love is pursuing me. It's chasing me down because God has it all stored up. Psalm 31 says that he stores up goodness for those who fear you, that have given you, God has given to those who trust him. God stores up this goodness. I think he chases it down, waiting to give it to us. If we just stop and we see him for who he is. Maybe you're not at a place where you're coming out of setback, but if you're close, will you see God? Maybe you need to confess a fear, your fear of God, your fear of the, the obstacles, or your lack of awe. Maybe the thing you need to do is not confess your fear. It's really to choose to see through abundant lenses. Just as we close, the band's going to come up, going to pray, but ask God, what do I need to do? Do I need to confess fear? Do I need to confess my lack of awe? Or do I need to put on these abundant lenses to see how big and how good and how much God wants to bless? Goodness and unfailing love that God has stored up and is chasing you down. What a great picture. Let's pray. God, I pray that if we haven't yet, through your story and your word, God, that we would catch a glimpse of who you are. That we would hear and sense and see the words that you are abounding in goodness, full of unfailing love. God, that yes, you punish part of your justice and your righteousness is that, that we have to live out things. But you don't, want it to be that way. You also break curses all the time. I pray if there are people here that, whether they have kids or not, that are, are carrying something around that's a family curse or this family consequence, God, that today in the name of Jesus, you would just break the chains. Whether it's worry or fear or scarcity, God, that you would break it in the name of Jesus. I pray that people would see you, that they would trust you because you are a God who brings people back from the dead God, bring us back from dead places. 
restore us fully. Help us to see that you do that because you're good. And God, help us to, to trust and take that step of faith and courage because you want to bless us beyond our imagination. You've stored up goodness and we, we agree with you in that. We will let you chase us down. We'll walk with you and we'll love you. Amen.